The first of our two Bible readings tonight is from Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting at verse 12. Uh, You'll find it on page 147 on the Red Pew Bibles. So now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of your Lord your God and his decrees that I am commanding you today. For your, own, for your own well-being. Although heaven and the heavens of heavens belong to the Lord your God, the earth and all that is in it, yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your ancestors, uh, on your ancestors alone, and chose you, the descendants, after them, out of all the peoples, as it is today. Circumcise then the foreskins of your heart, and do not, uh, do not be stubborn any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. Him alone you shall worship. To him you shall hold fast. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who, was, who has done for you these great and awesome things that your own eyes have seen. Your ancestors went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in heaven. Our second reading is from Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. And you can find that at the bottom of page 917. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, having been once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become the slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because because of your natural limitations. For For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you now are ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Over the last uh, few weeks, we have been walking with the Apostle Paul through Romans 5 and 6 as he draws for us what you might call the map of life. Second half of chapter 5, he sets out the contours of this map, the the high points, the low, dark valleys. First half of chapter 6, he places us on that map. He says, having been united to Christ in baptism... 
Well, what that means is we've been united to him in his death and united to him in his resurrection, spiritually now, bodily, when he returns. And what that means is that we're free from the terrible dominion of sin and death, those dark, deep, terrible valleys that he portrayed in chapter 5. And now finally, in this second half of the chapter, Paul tells us how to move forward, how to navigate the terrain, guided by the map, according to our position, in light of our freedom. And of all the things that we read in the Bible, I think that what we'll look at tonight is amongst the hardest, the most difficult, the most counterintuitive to believe. This is one that flies in the face of almost everything that we're told every day, hundreds and hundreds of times in the marketing atmosphere that surrounds us. What this chapter says is this, that Christian people are free, utterly, gloriously free, precisely in slavery to God. Let me say it again, just in case there's any kind of confusion about it. Because I told you this was weird, right? Christian people are free, the freest of all people, the freest that you can possibly get, and Christians are free precisely in the fact that we are slaves, servants, under the most direct and straightforward obligation that there can possibly be to God. Now, I say that as kind of brutally as I can in order to highlight just how ridiculous it sounds. And I don't want you to kind of sail past this without fully engaging with it because if there's one thing that everyone knows it's that freedom is all about the lack of restraint the lack of restriction the absence of obligation now, you know how the song goes if you've danced this song you know just what a great song it is to dance with I'm free to do what I want any old I'm about to start singing but I, but I won't I heard a story recently about the son of a woman uh, who died and the family was gathered for her funeral. The minister taking the funeral didn't know the family, that's often uh, the case. And so the minister asked this particular son, he was one of six children, about his mum. Now I don't think from his answer that this son was the sharpest tool in the shed. Uh, and when the minister asked him you know, to sort of tell a story that told uh, something about his mum, he scratched his head and, and here's what he came up with. Okay, this is the story he told. When we were younger, on a Saturday night, as we were about to go out, Mum used to say, just promise me one thing that you'll keep your zip done up. And then, as we'd walk out the door, she'd say, have a good time. And so I used to say to her, Mum, make up your mind. That guy knew what freedom meant. Freedom meant free to have sex with anyone he could find that night, free from any constraints of morality or decency or of the worst possible thing, commitment. That's what freedom is, right? To do what you want, any old time. It's worth, as you begin reflecting, allowing Romans 6 to marinate into your soul, just how much of that have you bought into that vision of freedom. The leaders of the 13 states of America put basically the same principle into far more grand-sounding words in the Declaration of Independence 
Remember how the Declaration of Independence starts? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is what life is, right? It's freedom, liberty. And what is freedom? The pursuit of happiness. You're free to do what you want any old time. It's so obvious that it seems ridiculous to question it. But what the Apostle teaches us tonight is that it is secular nonsense. And so our task this evening is to find a way not to believe it. To really find good grounds for understanding what true freedom is. To resist this potentially single biggest and most personally destructive lie that our culture tells us and instead to believe God. To trust him that he knows what he's talking about when he says that our freedom consists in precisely the fact that we can be slaves to God and to submit our hearts and our minds and our wills to his word. And to do that, we're going to look at the New Testament's Declaration of Independence. It's anthem to freedom. Chapter 6, pick it up at verse 15. What then? Should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Uh, the Apostles uh, picks up where we left off last week. We are blessed, he says. We are unimaginably, immeasurably blessed by God. Uh, the way he just sort of captures that in one little phrase is to say that we're under grace. Uh, it, it, what he means is that we're so blessed, in fact, that nothing can undo the blessing. We were loved at our worst. We were blessed when we were at our worst. And so not even our worst can stop the love and blessing of God. And given that, since that is the way things are, that, that raises a, a, a kind of a question potentially in your mind, doesn't it? I mean, and, and this question seems to make sense. And I'm hoping by the, the end of our time in Romans 6, you'll get to the point where you realise actually this question doesn't make any sense at all. Well, if we're under grace, does that mean it's party time? Time to rock and roll, to kick back and have fun, to sin because we're not under law? but under the blessed grace of God? And for Paul, the answer is, I think, a predictable and equally emphatic no. That's not especially surprising that his answer to that question is no. What is really fascinating is his reasoning because it turns our whole world upside down. And so I want to invite you to walk with him as he unfolds it in four stages starting with verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is its clarity and its simplicity. That's not why I believe it. I believe it because I believe in Jesus, but I think it is one of the most attractive things about being a Christian who honours the Scriptures. You see, it's perfectly clear, it was obvious to the Apostle Paul, maybe more obvious to him than us. He was far well, more well-travelled than, than any of us are. Uh, there are many, many different cultures and there are all sorts of different lifestyles and there's a myriad of different habits and there's an amazing number of preferences and taboos and languages and all of that kind of stuff. 
And that's true, that's real, and it's surface. And the scripture understands that at depth, it cuts through all of them, it says lying behind all of them, there really are only two realms. There really are only two zones which you can inhabit. It's just that simple. There's the zone of sin, which is what we've looked at a couple of weeks ago, that since the first human beings rebelled against the living and the true God, um, we're all kind of born into that realm. We're, we're sort of, our parents have migrated into there and that's just where you happen to get born now. That's our zone. Or, or second, the apostle says, there's the zone of obedience, the zone of grace. Um, I, I don't think the apostle has in mind primarily at this point our own obedience to God, although that's coming soon and it's not very far into the background. But, but rather, I think what he has in mind here is the obedience of Christ. Remember, that's exactly how he describes it in uh, the end of chapter 5. The obedience of the second Adam, which undergo, undoes the disobedience of the first Adam and is therefore the means by which this zone of grace is created. And that's it. They're the only two stamps that can be put on your passport. They're the only two boxes available for you to tick. There's no third option. There's no mid-ground between the two. And I wonder how you go with that map. And whether you kind of can take in this, this sharp clarity that the Apostle has. We need to develop it and, and see how the Apostle digs into it because there are a few things about these two zones as we move into the second stage of Paul's argument. You see, he starts off with a simple observation. Uh, in a world, uh, the Roman Empire, where there were literally hundreds of thousands of slaves, it's estimated that up to a third of the population actually was a slave. Um, Paul says, it's not very difficult to tell who's the slave and who's the master. You don't need a degree for this. There's no rocket science involved here. The slave is the one who obeys the master, right? That's just how things go. The master says, jump. The slave says, how high? And the Apostle says that we are slaves, every one of us, either of sin, which has its very clear outcome, death, or we are slaves of obedience, the obedience of Christ, which leads to righteousness. Uh, just as there are those two realms and the whole of any person's life can be summed up under one or other of those two categories, Paul says there's only one kind of relationship that you can have with them. You're a slave or you're a slave. That's it. They're your options. There's no alternative to human living than being a slave. Uh, American poet Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, once commented, we love flattery. Uh, I've, I've known a few flatterers actually in my time. Uh, people who just really work very hard uh, at manipulating you by flattering you. And, and Emerson notes that we love flattery even though we are not deceived by it, he says. Because at least it shows that we are of sufficient importance to be courted. Right? You're worth flattering. Even though both of you know that it's a load of nonsense, it's just nice to be thought of worth flattering. Well, here the apostle, frankly, is at his least flattering. 
He reduces us to our least important and he hardly bothers to court us at all, don't you think? According to the Apostle, the spiritual reality of your life is that you are frankly a bit player in the cosmos. You are a tiny little thing buffeted about by powers that are unimaginably greater than you are and and most of the time you haven't got even the faintest clue that that's true. There are two giant powers in the world, giant but no means equal notice, and where you fit in, well, you're a slave of one or you're a slave of the other. The only real question for us is whose slave will you be? It's one of the great lies of the Enlightenment, that period of history which overthrew all authorities, uh, the authority of the Bible and of the church and of God, and concluded that we're all our own authorities. We're our own masters, the captain of our own ship, the master of our own destiny. It's a highly attractive illusion. It's beguiling and it's seductive. It continues to infect and infest pretty much every movie or book or novel or poem. It's a lie. It's a lie that has enabled sin and death only to flourish and exert and maintain their stranglehold ever more tightly. It's a lie. You're not the master. You're a slave. Now, that's a very hard thing to hear, isn't it? Oh, really? I seem to make very important decisions all by myself. We love to think of ourselves as self-determining, self-directing, self-sustaining. But the Apostle, as I say, is at his least flattering here because he makes it perfectly clear that we're small players in a big game. There are powers that are so much greater than us, the power of God who gives life, the power of sin and evil that leads to death. And in relation to those powers which are the only two zones you can live in, though we might fool ourselves into thinking otherwise, all we can ever be is slaves of one or the other. And the whole point of the relationship of slavery is that it's not really an arena of choice. There's not a lot of options available for you in there. It's not about passing acquaintance. You don't clock in as a slave and then at quitting time, clock off. That's not how it goes. You're manacled, handcuffed, bound, hand and foot, led regardless of your preferences. That's how slavery works. What's more, not only is there no third zone, there's no ground in between these two realms, there's no overlap either. The Apostle says you can't have a foot in both camps. It's very strictly and absolutely an all or nothing either or sort of thing. If you're in one, then you're not in the other. You can't be the slave of two masters, Jesus said. You see it in verse 20. When you are slaves of sin, then you are free in regard to righteousness. If you're a slave in one zone, then you're free in regard to the other zone. There's no overlap. They're mutually exclusive. I think there's a parallel in marriage here. Uh, I'm married to my wife, Katrina, or in the language of St. Paul, I'm a slave to Katrina. 
And what that means is that I'm free in regard to any other woman. Some other woman wants me to do her shopping and that's a request that runs right off my back. It has no grip on me. It doesn't touch me in the slightest. I'm free. Katrina says do the shopping. I'm down at Coles before you can say for richer or for poorer. <laughs> at least that's a theory and happily she's not here to dispute it. So you're with the apostles so far? I mean, I want you to sort of reserve judgment here. You've got to decide. This is not a small matter to kind of go, yes, the apostle's onto something. He really gets it. I agree. You've got to know what he's saying first. And he's saying that there are two realms, two zones, and only two zones. That's point one. And point two is that the only kind of relationship you can have to these two zones is slavery. And the third phase of the argument then is this. Slavery to those two zones leads to two utterly predictable, determined outcomes. The one to death and the other to life. Pick it up at verse 21. So what advantage did you get from the things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. From an entirely pragmatic point of view, I think it's quite Australian actually, Paul's just saying, do the math. Look at how it goes. Think of the outcomes, the fruit of these two different zones. The fruit of sin is death. And at this point, I think you just you need to look, I mean, actually look at what happens in the world, how things go in the world Everything dies. Paul's right. He's right about this. Everything in that zone dies. And that's where everything is. The fruit of sin is death. That is exactly where it leads. That is exactly what it deserves. That's how wages work. But if because of Jesus Christ you've been dragged through into life, out of the zone of death, then the fruit of that, that obedience, that righteousness, that slavery and service to God, notice what the apostle says, it's got a free gift attached to it. It's a free gift of eternal life. And suddenly what happens is, right at the end of the chapter, the parallelism breaks down. Do you see what's been, what's been happening all along in the chapter? He's been developing these two parallel tracks. And, and, and they've gone together. Two zones. Slavery to either one or the other. Two outcomes. But as soon as the two outcomes are put on the table, it's clear that there's no contest, actually, between these two things. Suddenly the thought world in which Paul is operating, the whole idea of slavery breaks down. You can see, what he should have said in verse 23 is, the wages of sin is death, but the wages of God is... But you don't get wages with God, do you? All you get from God is free gifts. That's the only kind of stance you can ever have before God, is one who is a recipient of his free gift. You see, Paul, Paul can't keep the parallelism. It just, it just breaks down under the, the reality of the situation. 
Or another way to put it is this. In what sense is slavery to life really slavery in any sense of the word? It's like being a slave to joy. Slave to joy. But, but actually, of course, the whole point of slavery is that it's miserable, not joyful. It's like being a slave to excitement. But the whole idea of being a slave is drudgery and boredom. You, you see how the, the apostle kind of makes this sort of exploding point in verse 17. He says he's thankful that they've transferred from one slavery to another since really it's a transfer from slavery to what actually is freedom. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you're entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He says, I I get it that this, this metaphor, which is so powerful and prevalent in the culture around you and makes so much sense at one level, this whole metaphor of slavery, it's actually just, it's a kind of a really basic gut level illustration to bring the point down to a, pers- a level that anyone can understand. Sure, it's slavery, yes, that's true. But the Apostle says it's slavery to freedom, it's slavery to life, it's slavery to joy. And so then the conclusion, the point that he's been working to all the way along. Remember his initial question in verse 15, uh, where we started, shall we sin because we're not under grace, but, uh, sorry, because we're under grace and not under law? His answer, there was no way. Well, now he fills it in, verse 19. And therefore, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity. That's how it used to be before Jesus, before he grabbed you. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. Prior to being connected to Jesus, before they were Jesus' people, these people in Rome, and actually all people, the apostle says, act in a certain way. They present their members, their their bodies, uh, that's what Paul's talking about, the, the parts of themselves by which we do things in the world and turn ideas and intentions into actions. You do that with your body. It's whether you take your hands and make a handshake or a fist. It's whether you take your feet and, and get out of people's way or kick them when they're down. It's, it's whether you take your fingers and type emails and then don't hit send or do hit send. It's like that Facebook post that you really wish no one saw before you got to take it down again. It's the, 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 the vocal cords and the tongue and the mouth shape that enable air to come across and, and form words that either bring life to people or death to people. Your your members, your body bits, are the way that you do things, only the way that you, the only way you ever do things in the world. And the apostle says that prior to Jesus Christ, we're all little obedient slaves, nice little boys and girls obeying our master sin. Uh, This word present your members is a religious word. Um, it's used for the sacrifices that are offered to pagans uh, in uh, pagan gods in the temples. And is that not what we see around us? Tongues presented to iniquity with words of hate and dying and prejudice. Is it even possible 
anywhere do you find these days to have a civil conversation where people disagree about things that concern them greatly? There's just so much anger and hate that gets thrown about. Arms and fists presented to iniquity in violence and theft, whether that's violence in the home or violence on the street. Sexual members presented to iniquity in obscenity and immorality. Do I remember rightly reading that the pornography industry is now the second largest industry in the whole flippin' world? Can you believe that? You know why that is? It's because people pay for it. They're, they're just making a buck out of it, but it's people buying it. All good little boys and girls obeying their master sin. And Paul says, just as you used to do that with that master, now that you have a different master, march to the beat of a different drum. To his drum, which is the beat of righteousness that takes the form of sanctification, that kind of transparent, absolutely see-through a person straight to what's at their centre, which is Jesus Christ. What you do in the world, how you act and how you speak and how you move and how you refrain from acting and how you refrain from speaking and how you refrain from moving, do all of that, the Apostle is saying, as a living sacrifice offered up to God just like obedient slaves ought to. It was a dense passage, isn't it, Romans 6? It's, 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 it's sober, it's heavy, it's vast in its claims, it's all-encompassing in its implications for your life. We've taken some time to unpack it. And I want to go back again and highlight the almost breaking point paradox that this is teaching us. It is that slavery, with all the intensity of that metaphor, is in fact freedom when it's slavery to a particular master. Did you see that's really what the Apostle's saying? Slavery is in fact freedom when it's slavery to a particular master. It's the master who is the key. Notice how Paul varies quite considerably in his description of the, the master. In verse 16, we're slaves of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In verse 17, we become obedient to the form of teaching that we've received, the gospel. In verses 18 and 19, we're slaves of righteousness. In verse 22, we're slaves of God. In verse 23, it's from God that we've received the free gift of eternal life. It's because it's to the living and true God that we're enslaved that this slavery is at the same time true freedom. And there are two reasons for that. You see, on the one hand, this is simply an application of the reality that we and all that exists is the creation of this living and true God. We're not accidents. We're not just meaningless bits of cosmic dust that happen to get thrown together to make a human being. He made this world and he sustains it every second of its existence. And so to live for the one who created you is to live in freedom. It's to live the way you are made to be. Some years ago, I borrowed uh, from a friend her uh, brand new, gorgeous BMW 7 Series. 
Uh, I'd never really driven a performance car before then and haven't since actually. Uh, but I decided to put it through its paces and that meant going about 75 kilometres an hour in first gear on the freeway. I imagine that it's possible to drive that car at 150 kilometres in first gear. It would be screaming in its revs. It's possible to do that, but it's stupid. You're free to do it. You're free to do what you choose any old time. But it makes no sense. The car performs freely when it's driven according to the maker's instructions and you do too. And you do too. Whatever it might feel like. But the living and true God is not just our creator, he's also our redeemer. And notice the way that Jesus redeems us. You see, he is the one who from all eternity was free. Freest of any person ever. The free Lord of heaven who for love's sake, for your sake and my sake, emptied himself of all that glory. And you remember how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2? He took on the form of a slave. He was born as one of us. He came into our zone. He entered into the dark country of sin and he humbled himself and he became obedient. It's the same word. That's exactly what is at stake here. He was an obedient slave to death, even death on the cross. All to make you and I free. Free from sin's dreadful penalty and crushing power and ultimately even from its miserable presence. And it's precisely because he is that sort of Lord He's that sort of saviour. He's the Lord who became a slave. That our hearts go out to him. How could you not love one who has done that for you? How can it not be absolutely safe to serve in utter obedience one who would give himself like that for you? So as the Anglican prayer book puts it, his service is perfect freedom. And brothers and sisters, will you believe that tonight? Will you believe it tomorrow? Will you live it out? Because we need to draw the threads together here and see two things. You see, the first is that we are obliged we need to hear this loud and clear. We are slaves to God. That's what the apostle says. That's all you ever can be, a slave one to the, or the other, and you're a slave to God if you're in Jesus Christ. And so we live under obligations to a master. In one sense, it's true that it doesn't matter how you behave as a Christian. It's true in the sense that how you behave is not the thing that makes you right with God. That's absolutely true, but it's only half the truth. Because when you belong to God, it matters a great deal how you behave. You're a slave to the living and true God. You're bought, purchased with the precious blood of his son. And you belong to him. And so you're under obligation. I was a meeting this week uh, on Tuesday morning. And uh, it was a, a breakfast meeting and I was talking to some people. And for various reasons, uh, I wanted to be uh, kind of clear to them that they were 
um, kind of uh, under obligations in relation to the institution of which I was uh, representing at that point in time. And so, you know, I'm, I'm aware that this is a, an a interesting thing to say, and so I, I made a few jokes to lead up to it, and we're sort of all getting along really nicely, and, and, and then I, just, I, I, I used the O word. You're under an obligation. And, and you could feel the bristling in the room. We hate, we hate the thought that we're under obligation. But it's only because we don't get the second part of the truth that's here for us, which is every bit as important and powerful as the first. And it is that this slavery, this obligation, is in fact freedom because of who our master is. It's the greatest experience of freedom that you can possibly have because it's a slavery to grace and life. And so when sin says to you tomorrow, do my shopping for me, you know what to do, right? Slides off your back. Because it's not your master. Five centuries ago, the great European reformer and leader Martin Luther uh, wrote a little booklet. It's called The Freedom of a Christian or On Christian Liberty. It's not very long. It's only about uh, 30 pages. It's on the net. It's a re- you've got to read it sometime. Uh, by the end of this year, just make sure you've read Free- The Freedom of a Christian. It is a really superb read. At the start of the booklet, Luther just sort of captures Romans 6 beautifully. He, he, he opens with this pair of statements which he just holds together and says, you've just got to hold this. He says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. We're under grace. We're following Jesus to glory. Nothing can touch you. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. We're a slave to God and therefore to our neighbours. And both of those things make sense together. Amen.